Hello everyone, Happy New Year and welcome back to another episode of Trust Issues. Uh, before we begin this episode, a couple of points. One is that this was recorded in mid-December, so although there, I don't think there's anything that is too time sensitive, there may be a couple of points where we're looking forward to the new year. The reason for that is because, because it was recorded then. Uh, the other is the usual reminder that Past performance is not a reliable indicator of future results. The value of investments can fall as well as rise, and you may get back less than you invested when you decide to sell your investments. It is strongly recommended that if you are a private investor, independent financial advice should be taken before making any investment or financial decision. I also have to say that Kepler Partners has a relationship with the company covered in this podcast, and a conflict of interest may impair the objectivity of it as a result. And with that, I hope you enjoy this week's episode. This week, I'm joined by Marek Proszepczynski and and Elsa Craig from the International Biotechnology Trust. Uh, Elsa, perhaps we could start with you. Um, can you just talk a bit about what it, what IBT is, what does it invest in, and that sort of stuff? Sure thing. So thank you for having us, David. Um, IBT is uh, an investment trust listed on the London Stock Exchange and primarily invests in um, biotechnology companies. It's just shy of 300 million in market cap. uh, And the goal of of the trust is to give our shareholders exposure to the whole of the biotech industry from new ideas coming out of university all the way up to mega cap biotech names. So um, to give a bit of color band behind that. Approximately 10% of the trust is invested in what's called venture companies, so venture biotech before they're listed on the stock market. And the rest of the portfolio, um, 90% is invested in listed biotech names. So that's a kind of very sort of basic overview of the trust. So the extra tools that we have in our toolbox with it being an investment trust mean we can gear the trust. Um, So we can borrow money from the bank when we think things are oversold and use that money to invest in some biotech names. Um, We we also feel that the closed-end structure is more suitable to invest in the unquoted venture side of the portfolio that I just spoke about. And on top of that, we have a dividend as well. So we pay 4% out to our shareholders each year of NAV um, in two installments, 2%, 2%. So that's a very basic overview of, of what we do. Okay, great. Thanks very much for that, Elsa. So uh, I'm not sure which which one of you wants to take this, but I think we're seeing quite a lot of M&A in the, in the space that you invest in at the moment. So maybe Marek, if, if you feel comfortable answering it, can you talk a bit about why you think that's happening? Yeah, thank, thank you, David, for having, uh, for having us here. Yeah, to begin with, we, we need to go back to the basics. How, do, how does the pharma industry really work? Where, are the, where is the innovation coming from and, and how, how is the ecosystem set up? So to begin with, pharma companies, they, they are really good at executing late stage trials and they are really good at selling the drugs where the innovation comes from smaller companies. And that has been the driver of biotech development. Small companies come up with ideas and then they uh, consequently being acquired by pharma. Of lately, we have seen correction in, in uh, values of, of biotech. Uh, so pharma need to plug their, their patent expiries and they want to grow the product portfolio. So they have chosen of recent to go and invest in companies that have a drug on the market 
or very close to, to a drug on the market. And that has driven some of the M&A activity of recent. And we should say as well, Marek's background actually is working in BizDev within the industry. So he's moved over from uh, that role in, in pharma over to fund management. So he has a real insight into what the thinking is within pharma, what they're looking for, the innovation, and more, most importantly, the valuations they're willing to pay. Um, and to answer your question, the earlier stage companies get picked up, to Marek's point, to fill the void that they will see from patent expiries as their products mature and come off patent. And then also to layer on top of that, we've got this Inflation Reduction Act we can talk about later on, which is a new legislation um, to neg negotiate drug pricing within Medicare. So this is putting increased pressure on big pharma, big biotech to make acquisitions um, uh, with the huge cash balance sheet that they have. So they have a, a very big capacity uh, to buy up these companies. Great. And um, I mean, my, my impression, and I think you, you touched on this in your answer as well, um, is that it's these sort of smaller, more innovative early stage companies that are being purchased by big pharma type businesses. Um, obviously, you're looking, to, I guess, sometimes to invest in those smaller, more innovative companies. Again, my impression is I do tend to be more risks with those sorts of businesses, as in any industry. So, firstly, could you perhaps talk a bit about what those risks are, just for someone that isn't necessarily familiar with the space? And also, from your point of view as managers, how do you go about trying to avoid them or navigate them? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and you're completely right. So, obviously, the earlier stage companies inherently have more risk. Um, uh, there's lots of kind of convoluted ways we can answer this question, but just very basically high level. To get a drug to market, the drug needs to be safe and effective and go through various different stages of clinical trials. Um, it then needs to go to the regulator and get approved. And then there's, a, there's another layer of risk, which is will it be paid for? So all of those aspects we have to take into account when we make an investment decision. Uh, and we call those various different risk um, points binary events, binary meaning the stock could go up or down a considerable amount. So as fund managers, how do we like, manage these risk events? So first of all, because we're a fund, we're diversified across a number of different companies and that inherently reduces your risk. So we have um, circa 60 names in our, in our quoted portfolio, um, many of whom are in that bucket that you, you talk about, the innovative early stage um, um, area. Some of, some of these companies, however, are late stage and, and are actually making acquisitions. Um, so that's a bit of a, a, an understanding of, of, of the risks there. We can also trade out of companies going into these binary events if, if we chose to. Um, so a lot of our job is monitoring when these events are going to be. Are we happy with that risk um, upside downside into the events? Should we sell out and buy back if it's more expensive after the um, de-risking event? Is that an attractive proposition? And those are the decisions that we make day in, day out. And it's important to note that um, certainly I've been following uh, biotech stocks since 2001. So we've seen lots of cycles and lots of companies um, go through the different uh, stories that we've just talked about. Marek as well has been following biotech since about the same time, but obviously he's been in industry for the initial part of his career. So it takes a lot of experience and know-how, um, seeing companies make mistakes and learning from those mistakes. We learn too. So this is all part of the toolbox that we have when we invest in companies. 
Yeah, interesting. And one of the points you just touched on that, touched on that, sorry, was the sort of cyclical nature of the sector. Um, and I mean, I, I think if for, for anyone listening, you can go on the IBT website. They published quite a good article recently looking at this. Um, but I th- can you maybe talk about what those cycles look like? And again, maybe how that what what that means for you as managers in the sector. So sort of what risks it poses, but also maybe any opportunities that you can take advantage of. Um, yes, uh, let, let, let's start with, I think it's a good idea to go back to what happened prior to the COVID pandemic. Once the COVID pandemic hit, all high risk or relatively risky business went down a lot. Then the central banks started to flush the market with money. And since biotech is considered on a relative basis a more risky, risky endeavor, you have a lot of liquidity reaching the, the stock market and the small biotech companies were lifted, valuations went up massively. And if you think about the cyclicality, once the bio, small biotechs go up, you have a lot of IPOs because a lot of pub, private companies go back into the market because you, you get a better value proposition listing your company rather than selling it to pharma. But with the cyclicality comes also saturation. Once you have too many companies, that's too much money chasing uh, uh, too, many, too many companies, and suddenly the interest fades, uh, money comes out of the of the system, so to speak, the, the biotech uh, sphere. Uh, you have on the margin very early stage companies that many of them fail, and then you have a sentiment going down, uh, valuations go, hit rock bottom, uh, retail investors just shy away, you have only specialists, and then once the valuations come down, you see big pharma, big biotech stepping in because then then they finally see value that they are willing to pay for as a premium and the cycle repeats itself once once you have reached these valuations M&A starts to happen then the biotech companies valuations start to creep up again and the cycle repeats itself all over me and Elsa have been through these cycles at least three four times what happened during the pandemic was that this cycle had a full churn within 24 months. We have never experienced that quick being from being in the bottom to the peak and bottom again in 24 months. That has never happened. Normally it takes three to five years to go through a full cycle. We saw it at the beginning of, of the millennium. Uh, it, it went, we can have a couple of years in the drought and then it came back and then we had in 2015 and now during the post pandemic. We know this is a cycle that repeats itself. This is we. This is where you see opportunities being created by the market for us. And what's interesting is that this is a. It's an investment cycle. The industry itself um, is is as strong as ever. So they're continuing to to, to discover and develop new drugs. Um, and so there's no sort of. There are definitely influences from the investment community in that the capital raising, for example, an IPO market will have tailed off right now when we're in the sort of when the, the correction is happening and the, the biotech sector is out of favor. Um, but each year, more clinical trials are ongoing and there's a trend upward with the number of um, drugs being approved by the FDA. So the industry itself and the innovation going on in the background is, 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 is still incredibly strong. 
So, I mean, it, it sort of sounds like as though you can have lots of noise, but the overall trend is that growth is there, or that the, the, the sort of, I suppose, the underlying factors driving the market, which seems to be... Well, I, I mean, actually, can you talk a bit about maybe what does drive the market? Because from my point of view, it seems like you have new technology which can cater to demand, but also there's people have more money to spend on medical services so that's driving that's there's you know they're willing to spend money and then you also have aging populations in most of the world which also drives demand um so those things sort of seem more secular rather than cyclical so how does that how do those how does the i suppose my question is which is after a very long-winded uh, bit of rambling is what the sector seems to have a lot of secular tailwinds behind it, but what you've described is, it seems very much like a yeah, cyclical thing. Which how, how do those two gel together? That's a re- really good question, David. We are struggling with that every day, considering a drug takes at least 10 years to develop from, from scratch to, to finish line, whereas the investment cycles could be as short as 24 months. Uh, but I think let's go back and start with the demographic, demographic shift that's going on in the world. I'm just this is a global industry, so let's start with, start with that. Uh, the population is, is growing, not that quickly, but the older population is growing dramatically. And at, as soon as we reach the age of approximately 50, the ailments start to kick in and we start to get sick. And, and this is where the secular growth is coming from. We, we have more patients, basically. This is what's happening. And the industry have responded in kind. They have increased the number of clinical trials because they know that population will demand better drugs, safer drugs, more precise drugs. We have seen more or less a doubling of clinical trials during the last decade. And to Elsa's point previously, we have more approvals coming through as well. So this secular growth has been going on for at least 20, 30 years. And we we believe it will continue on. We have new technological advances, new treatment modalities coming through. And that's a tailwind that's ongoing. But when, when when you talk about the financial ones, the investment cycle might be shorter, but in the long run, uh, you will have new, better drugs coming through and people will pay for it. And that's kind of our conviction. And I think also um, what's been hitting the market is often nothing to do with the sector. So the reason um, we've had this huge uh, pullback uh, is because of rising interest rates and the threat of rising interest rates. And so you see these sort of financial impacts on our share prices. But like I said before, it's not necessarily because the industry itself has an issue. So you've got, like you say, this sort of yin and yang between the investment cycle and the industry cycle. But like you say, the industry cycle itself is is ongoing um, uh, pull of supply from the industry of new drugs and that are more effective and safe and the demand from um, an aging population. And over the long term, this might be why historically um, biotech generally outperforms the healthcare market and the healthcare market generally outperforms the broader, wider um, uh, S&P 500 or FTSE or whatever you're following uh, is because of this supply and demand over the long term. Great. And to go back to something you mentioned at the beginning, I think you have some exposure to venture style businesses, right? I mean, you're, you're investing in private companies um, and we've talked a bit about how you're investing in smaller, earlier stage businesses. Um, I sort of see that as, you know, 
for someone who's probably not as specialized in biotech, I think if you think about just sort of internet stocks or something like that, if you looked at last year, there was this huge wave of interest uh, in, in almost like any kind of new technology that was coming out, um, kind of like the dot-com bubble or something like that. Um, and from my point of view, this seems there's, there's so many companies where it's, it seems very, very difficult to predict um, what technology is going to succeed or even if they do have a good piece of technology, um, whether they're, they're actually going to be the one who is able to monetize it and make it into a good business. Um, so if I think of something like everyone always is looking for next Amazon, right? But I always think Amazon is a bit of a survival bias business because there are lots of people trying to do something similar. So um, again, quite a long-winded way of asking this, but how, how do you try and determine which companies are actually going to do well and have a good product and so on um, yeah. in an area that can can probably be subject to yeah there's this is it's i don't know feel almost like randomness or they're just very early stage so it's difficult to say what's going to happen so on the on the yeah you're actually right so we have this venture side of the portfolio um and the way we we deal with that is that we are in a, I have an umbrella company above um, IBT, which is called SB Health Investors. And SB Health Investors is um, a specialist venture firm. So they have been around. Uh, it was actually founded by Kate Bingham um, uh, 20, 30 years ago, ages ago. Um, and the Kate Bingham, who you may remember, stepped aside and helped um, manage the vaccine task force for the Boris Johnson um, uh, government. Anyway, she's back in. She's back here now, and um, and thoroughly enjoys her job. And it's her specialism and her experience, backed up by the SV Health Investors team, uh, that go out to universities and help start biotech companies and use the ideas and the innovation and harness those ideas, give them early stage funding, and generate the next um, generation of biotech companies. That's their job, and they've done it for for decades now. So they really know their stuff. Um, and so what we do at IBT is we invest in SV funds. So you, again, you've got another layer of diversification. Uh, and these funds themselves are made up of various different early stage venture companies. Um, so we have two investments in two funds, and that makes up the 10% of the investment trust. Um, uh, as to how they can tell what the next big idea is, et cetera, uh, it's using experience, know-how, speaking to um, uh, experts internally and externally. Uh, it's all brought together and um, put, to put money behind these companies. But, you know, hugely risky. And often it's one or two big hits that, that make the return so good um, from those funds because many of them will fail. And that's the nature of the game. It always has been and it always will be. Okay, well, to, to maybe continue on the innovation theme, can you talk a bit about just sort of any interesting developments that you see in the sector, but also how that how that impacts you as as managers? Because I would imagine if you if if something new is coming out very rapidly, following on from something else, then your ability to uh, so benefit from that as an investor can be reduced, right? If you invest in something and then two years later someone else is coming up with a drug that's better than that one, then, then yeah. the benefit of investing may, may go disappear. That, I mean, if I, again, that is our day job stuff. So we need to constantly be looking behind our shoulder at who's got the next generation 
um, product? Is it better than the one that we own? And that's how we manage the fund. So um, often we, uh, if we think, yes, actually these guys have got a better therapy and it's going to cannibalize the market of the, the position we have in our fund, we would sell our position and buy them. And that's the beauty of being able to trade um, public listed company investments. So it gives us that flexibility to be able to say, you know, um, uh, there's something better out there. Let's switch. Yeah, and I, I can add to to when me and Elsa started uh, approximately 20 years ago, we only had monoclonal antibodies and small molecules. Since then, we have seen several additions to the armamentum of drug development, drug treatment. Now you have cell therapies, which basically you take a cells from a sick patient, modify the cells, expand them, put them back to the patient, and those cells actually are the ones fighting the tumor, which currently is these drugs are approved. You have RNA therapies, which the Moderna and BioNTech's uh, vaccines were based on. Also a way of treating patients that previously, you know, RNA therapies was considered undruggable. And we see iterations every year. Gene therapy, also another way of treating patients when you actually take and insert a gene that you have, you have for example, you, you're born with, with as you can't produce, say, you have hemophilia, you can't produce uh, the, the factor that creates the clotting in your blood and you, you can bleed to, to death. Currently you, you, you give them enzyme replacement therapy, but there are gene therapies approved now or one gene therapy approved, basically curative. It's a lot of things has happened uh, and we every year we see incremental improvements. Drug development is not always like putting a man on the moon. Sometimes you see big, big improvements in specific areas, but in general, it's a grind. The, the industry is helping patients close. By year, every year we improve incrementally. Mm. Okay, well, perhaps to finish off on, on a similar note, it's obviously been a very strange year or even couple of years. Um, we're heading almost into 2020, we are heading into 2023 very soon. Um, from from an investment point of view, are there any areas, if you can talk about it, any areas of the market that you guys, I think, particularly exciting? I'm talking, I mean, sectoral rather than specific company names. Yeah, so um, uh, the, the same things every year, the things that we follow and look out for will be major clinical readouts, um, uh, new drug launches, how are those launches going? Um, uh, and um, you know things we can't predict like M&A and so next year we will see a second to market um, KRAS inhibitor launched on um, for lung cancer patients and it'll be you know we, we will follow that launch is it going to go successfully etc um, uh, so that's something that we're watching sorry sorry to, uh, sorry to interrupt on that but what does that what is a uh, KRAS inhibitor KRAS. <laughs> yeah what does that mean yeah, so basically, um, if you take a step back, the way we traditionally used to treat cancer was to just kill all dividing cells with chemotherapy. These days, you can sequence the tumor and see what mutation is driving that cancer, that cell dividing uncontrollably. One of those mutations in lung cancer, there are many, many, many different mutations, um, is a, obviously a subpopulation of the whole of lung cancer, and it's called the KRAS mutation. And it was originally an undruggable um, mutation. People have tried time and time again to get drugs to try and, and, and stop this uh, mutation from going out, getting out of hand. So ultimately, Amgen were first to market with their drug Lumacras, 
And there's a second company, a small biotech called Marathi, who have um, just received approval for their drug. In fact, it was this week. Um, and so they'll be launching their drug and competing against a big pharma, big biotech name. So it'll be interesting to see what happens there. Will it be a successful drug? Because it's a small market. You know, there's only a few patients with lung cancer with this mutation. So that's the sort of thing we'll be watching for. Um, we've, and then to uh, Marek's point on haemophilia, we've just had a gene therapy approved um, from a company called Unicure to treat haemophilia B. Again, interesting. Let's see how that works, how that plays out, how, what the uptake will be. Um, and then a really big headline, and this was on you know, the Today program a few weeks ago, uh, there was some data out from Biogen and Esai, partnered, uh, two big pharma companies, partnered companies, uh, with, had showing successful um, improvement for Alzheimer's patients for their drug, lecanemab. So will, you know, will society be willing to pay for that drug? What will the launch be like? Will patients want it, etc.? So all of these things we'll be watching closely um, next year. Okay, Marek, do you have any any other thoughts, or is or is Elsa done a good job of covering I, I everything? I agree with Elsa, but I'm thinking more of a kind of a more holistic view that it, it's always the areas that that addresses the highest unmet needs, mm -hmm. the orphan or rare diseases where, where you maybe only or the only drug approved and actually makes a big difference. We might not need another diabetes drug, but for some, some certain diseases, specifically pediatric diseases, there are still a lot of high unmet medical needs that will be, be handled and a lot of drugs are in the development. But also in oncology, to Elsa's point, it's not only KRAS mutations, we have other dis other tumors that needs to be addressed and mm -hmm. the incremental grind, as I spoke previously, there are new drugs coming through, maybe a bit safer, a, on the margin better, but we are getting there slowly but surely. And, and this is the areas where people are willing to pay because you actually extend lives or actually save lives rather than lifestyle drugs, which are needed in, in a way, but it's, it's less societal pressure to, to pay for it. Great. Well, I, I don't know if it's a, a happy way to end, but it's definitely a very interesting way to end. So, uh, Marek and Elsa, thanks very much for, for joining me. And hopefully we can uh, chat again maybe in the new year. Thanks, David. Thank you. You've been listening to Trust Issues by Kepler Trust Intelligence. You can subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Remember to visit our website at trustintelligence.co.uk to keep up with all the latest research on investment trusts.